Here's what I'm going to ask you to do is go ahead and take uh, your, your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 12. We're going to finish the chapter today. There's some things I want to look at real quick because I want to, I'm, I want to show you far-reaching examples of some of the things that they're talking about here. But I also want to give you this. I had some mix-up in printing. I apologize that the font is so small. You may look at this and say, good grief, I don't, I don't care about this at all. And that's fine. But I want to, I want to show you that some of the things that are displayed in the Bible, the reason how we know that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit is because this is not an easily done uh, situation here. This is what is known, if you remember this from last year, as a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure. And what a chiasm is, is it's the idea of starting with an overall outside developed point on both ends of the subject matter that you're talking about. So not just beginning, but also ending. You have commonality or contrast in some way. And then you move forward from that into the idea of a main thought that needs to be communicated. Let me get you guys this paper real quick just so you can see it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but what I do want to do is put it in your possession so that if you want to work through it throughout the week, you can, and you can see what's going on. We don't need two. That's all right. You can take two. I'll make lots of copies. But if you notice, if you notice at the beginning of each one of these paragraphs, you've got the idea of a, of a structure. A, B, C, D, E, and then D apostrophe, C apostrophe, B apostrophe, and A apostrophe. Now, if you notice at the bottom, I've got this listed because there is a website called biblicalchiasmus.wordpress.com. And if you're ever interested to go there to see the chiasms in the Bible, there's the literary structure that is being used to emphasize a point. This guy keeps a collection of them just because he's a big fan of them. He loves them. Uh, so, notice, for instance, the first one, A. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Now look down at A apostrophe all the way down at the bottom. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. Does everybody see the commonality between the commands of being careful to observe, careful to do? Everybody see that? Okay, then it works in on each side. From the bottom up and from the top down, it works into a second theme that they want you to get. So the idea, notice the bold-faced types. Destroy all the places where the nations who, uh, where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Uh, tear down the altars, sacred pillars, burn the ashram, cut down the engraved images, that whole type of thing, obliterate it. Go down to B apostrophe. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations that you're going to dispossess, beware that you're not ensnared to follow them. Notice it says do not inquire after their gods. Uh, notice the whole idea of serving their gods, their gods. Everybody see how that runs in? So you can work through that and you can see the commonality. Now, why do they do this? Number one, uh, well, let me just say it this. Most importantly is, is they want to build everything that is important up to a pinnacle point. And the pinnacle point is the middle meeting place. And notice what that is in E, verse 19. Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. For whatever reason, that is the main stressor that Moses wanted to get across in this chapter. Now, this isn't unusual. If you've been following the Deuteronomy class for a while... You will know that, let's see here, uh, chapter 8 is a chiasm all the way through. 
you will also know that some of the issues that are going on in verse nine, or sorry, chapter nine, are chiastic in structure as well. So this isn't something unusual to the book of Deuteronomy, like we've never seen it before. But it is a literary device that is intentionally placed there by the Holy Spirit in order to draw the contents together to one penetrating important point. Why would you want to supply for the Levite? Does anybody remember last uh, week? Because they have nothing. What is their inheritance? The The Lord alone is their inheritance. But as far as houses to live, places that would sustain them, as far or, or sorry, food that would sustain them, uh, clothing that would even be given for them, or any of that stuff. That all comes from outside <laughs> sources for the provision. Now, here's why this is important that the society works in this way. Number one, it typifies the idea of a mediator between God and people. Now, we know that later to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as the mediator between Him and us. But on top of that, it goes to show that everyone in this community has to be working together in order for everybody to be properly provided for. That's no different from the church. In fact, that whole idea where it would be material blessings going on in Israel typifies spiritual blessings that are to go on in the church. And that's why in January, when we start the whole idea of what are spiritual gifts and what are the spiritual gifts in the church, why do they exist, how should they be used, how should they be exercised, which ones are valid, which ones are not valid, which ones do you have, how should you be using them in the body of Christ, all that is going to be interlocked with the idea of people coming and providing, offering the same sacrifices, those types of things, because everybody is to be existing in commonality and contrast contribution to one another. It is all about the edification of something greater than yourself. So Israel to live in community with God and have the Levites as their priest, if it does nothing else, it pushes them beyond self-servitude. Does that make sense? It's the same way with the church. The church is never an entity unto itself. In fact, that's the problem that Corinth had. First Corinthians, the problem was we all want to speak in tongues because we think it's so cool. And Paul says it's not cool. It's abuse. You guys are involved in some drastic ecclesiastical abuse here. And the problem is, is other parts of the body are withering and suffering because everybody thinks they have one gift when you need a diversity of gifts to be mutually encouraging one another. No one can exist on an island. It just doesn't happen that way. Not even Gilligan. Eventually he got off. So, any questions about chiastic structure emphasizing the main point? Again, this is just like a literary structure thing. Some of you will be super nerdy into this. Some of you are looking to, to fuel the fire at home with this after your time, so it's okay. Okay, so let's go back to chapter 12. And we're going to pick up in verse 28. And the reason is, is if you have a New American Standard Bible, what is interesting about verses 28 and 29 right next to each other? Does anybody see something that marks them apart? Notice we didn't read the verses. That should be a hint. There's something that marks them as being a little bit different. Both of the numbers are bolded. What does that mean? What does that mean in the New American Standard Version? It means that you are starting a new paragraph or unit of thought in this situation. So, how many of you are familiar with Pastor Steve's charting method, making the chart? Okay, some of us are, some of us aren't. We should do that sometime in here just so everybody would be familiar with that. That would be very helpful uh, for us to figure out. It'll help with your daily uh, Bible study. Pastor Steve does it every morning when he gets up, okay? 
It's, a, it's very helpful. But what you usually find, the great thing about the New American Standard Bible is, is they have bold-faced their verse numbers in order to give us an idea of where a new segment of thought, a switch in thought, a new paragraph would happen, something like that is going on. Well, what's interesting about that is when you have 28 and 29, you really don't have what seems like much information that is separating two separate points of thought. Well, if you were doing the charting method, you would probably find one unit of thought and you would make a chart out of that one unit of thought. That means one of your charts would be just verse 28, okay? So look at verse 28. Again, we've, we've seen this before. Be careful to listen to all the words which I command you. Here's the reason. So that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of of Yahweh your Elohim. Notice there is a moral declaration of what is good and what is right. What is good and what is right? What is good and what is right is to be obeying the Lord, period. Notice the time span on how long this blessing would last. What does it say? Forever. Now stop for a second. When the kingdom was divided in half, right about here, okay, from Bethel upwards, that ended up becoming Israel, down was Judah, that was the main dominant tribe, and also Benjamin was in the south. So you have the northern and the southern kingdom after the time of Solomon. Do you realize that it never had to get to that point? All they had to do was obey the Lord. Well, no one can keep the law. You're correct, but when you mess up keeping the law, you can bring the proper sacrifice. See, that's the interesting thing. God didn't put something in their hands that was completely impossible for them to keep. You see what I'm saying? Provided that they kept the proper sacrifices going with it. That's part and parcel of part of the law. It's not that he's demanding perfection out of me. It's that when I sin and when I mess up, I'm acknowledging that and I'm seeking to rectify that before the Lord. Well, their big problem was is we're all running off trying to serve all these other different gods instead of the one God who loved them and provided for them. Is that 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament? It could be. Technically. And that's the interesting thing. Let's be honest. 1 John 1, 9 isn't really about us verbally saying, Lord, I've sinned in this way. And we, we give a list. That's really not what it's about. It's really about conveying an attitude. Just coming to the Lord humbly. God, yeah, I've messed up. And I'm so grateful for Christ because even though I know what I've done, and I'm telling you about what I've done, I've confessed it, you're not casting me away. You're not saying, well, there's a degree of separation here and we've got to go through some hoops in order to get back in right relationship. He doesn't do that. He says the relationship has never gone away. The fellowship has become fractured. But as the one who is responsible for fracturing it, take the humble steps to rectify it. It's already, and let me, let me say it this way. This may sound weird and an overstatement, but I think it's important. The possibility of it already being a rectifiable fellowship, does that make sense? Has already been secured by Christ, yes? I mean, the whole fact that his death has made it perfect and that his blood continually cleanses is the idea that makes it possible for you to keep coming. But what would keep your fellowship in a fractured state? Your unwillingness to, to, uh, to rectify the situation. Exactly. Your unwillingness to come to God to, to take advantage of the rectification that's already been made for you. You see what I'm saying? It's the heart. It's always the heart issue. The heart is always the problem in every one of these situations. So yes, it's the same type of attitude. Be careful to keep them. 
And see, this is convicting for us. And this is one of the things that dispensationalists love about separating ourselves from Israel. Because when it says, be careful to do all these things and to keep all these statutes, well, I'm sure I'm glad he doesn't demand that for me now. Let me ask you a question. If we looked at the New Testament and reoriented our entire lives and everything that we participate in to be more compliant with the New Testament, don't you think that would be a really good thing? Yeah, but it's a hard decision to make, isn't it? I, mean, I think it's real interesting. I had a couple come to me freshly saved. I mean, you could tell they were as green as could be. It was, it was, and, I, and they said, "I'm looking to get." The husband was gone gung ho. I'm looking to get God in my marriage. I said, "Brother, you're in it for a world of hurt." <laughs> and here's the reason why: you've been married for so long without God as part of it, and now you're going to introduce the truth into a fabric that that the devil's been back there at the singer sewing machine weaving right out. You're, we're going to bring him in here and mess all this up? It's going to hurt. And it did. It hurt bad. And they had to learn and learn and learn and unlearn so that they could relearn. I'm telling you, it's an interesting thing when you've already got relationships that are ongoing and you try to bring Jesus into it. How many of you had like close friendships and then all of a sudden Jesus came in and all of a sudden you realize that you didn't have any friends? Anybody? I did, man. Different friends. Different friends. When my life got serious about Jesus in October of 1998, I was saved way back in 1983, 84. I came to a realization I needed Christ as a young kid. But man, I didn't do anything to live for his name whatsoever. But in October of 1998, the Lord got a hold of me and was like, you are going to go to hell if you don't deal with this stuff. And so I sometimes question whether or not I was really saved or not. Then I had to think about it later and say, you know what? But it was this very realization of the, the path you're on is a destructive path. It's not going to end well for me. And what I'm realizing now, what it was, was the Lord was going to chasten me. I mean, severely. It was bad. I was in all kinds of stuff. And what I realized is I started telling people, oh, man, well, I'm, I'm, I'm real serious. You know, how come you don't have any beer at this party? Oh, well, because I used all my beer money and went and bought a Bible. Everybody's like, what? <laughs> what? i tell you what. It didn't take two weeks. My phone stopped ringing. I only had one pagan friend who still wanted to hang out with me. And, she, and that's because she really, she was like my Ellen DeGeneres in my life, I guess, is where she was really looking beyond the lines of, I'm really genuinely about this whole idea of just trying to love people, you know? And she didn't have Christ, you know? Does that, is that a weird reference for you guys? Everybody remember, did everybody see a couple of weeks ago, three weeks yeah. ago, whenever they were in the press box together at the Dallas, uh, the Dallas Green Bay game, and people on Twitter giving them flack, the gay community went nuts because Ellen DeGeneres was speaking, was sitting with uh, President, President Bush. Bush. And the same thing, they were talking, laughing, having a good time. She's showing him stuff on her phone and all this stuff like that. <clears throat> well, how could you, as someone who is considered the face of the gay community, turn and see when you're rich, you, you, you'll always deny your own, so you'll go associate with those who are well off. And I mean, just kind of crazy, scathing things. And she got on her program and she said, guys, I actually believe that even though I disagree with somebody, I'm still mandated to love them. To still care about them. I was like, good grief. Ellen's given a more Christian response than most people are. What is wrong with us? You know? How, how, how crazy to be convicted by people who don't love Jesus. It's unbelievable. So, But that's how kind of how that girl was in my life at that time. She's like, yeah, you're saved and it's kind of weird and you're a little different now. You know? You, you've got, you want to read your Bible a lot and all this stuff and you want to carry it with you all the time. But I still want to hang out with you and I still want to be your friend. We didn't have to have alcohol be the center of it. Well, it's the same type of idea there. So, anyway. Moving on. That gives you the idea of verse 28. Verse 29. When Yahweh your Elohim cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess 
and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. Beware that you're not ensnared to follow them. Now, here's why this is interesting. Number one, the word cuts off. Everybody see that? This is the word that is often used for the idea of separating the foreskin as the Jewish rite that was given by God. Okay, so the idea of cutting off. But when you're using it in this sense of speaking about a nation of people, you're talking about destroying them. You're talking about annihilation. You're talking about killing them. You're talking about going in and slaughtering. Now, notice I'm not using the word murder. And here's the reason why. The people of these nations, they were not guiltless people. They weren't innocent by any means. In fact, you can go through Levitical law and you can find some comparisons of the way that Israel is not to act when they go into the land because the land is vomiting out the people who are currently in the land, the Canaanites and all those people, because of the atrocious acts that they've committed and therefore the land won't have them anymore. God is getting rid of them and he's using Israel as his judgment tool to do that. So the idea of cutting off there, let's let's not soften it up and let's realize God's talking about the harem, the idea of utter destruction or utter destroying in the situation. He says here, before your nations, which you're going into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. So notice, when you've completed the conquest is the idea. Real quick, has the conquest ever been completed? You can tell from my question, it has not. And the way that we know is because in, in just this map right here, we'll give it away to you. If you notice how this is segmented between the 12 tribes of Israel, yes. Yeah, where's the expanse of the land supposed to be to? All the way to the Euphrates River. How come we don't have any maps that show where the 12 tribes inherited all the way to the river? You never see that. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. In fact, here's what's interesting. Your descendants will become as many as the stars of the skies. What are the Abrahamic promises? Where was that fulfilled? Does anybody know? Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 10. Moses says, This day you have become as many in number as the stars in the sky. Fulfilled promise pretty quickly. Through you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Has that been fulfilled? Yes. Who was that fulfilled through? The Lord Jesus Christ. But they've never occupied the full expanse of the land. This is the reason why when we talk about the tribulation, uh, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the kingdom being literal in nature and not in my heart and not getting better as we make people in our government more Christian and those types of things. All of that stuff is crazy talk, okay? The reason why it is is because there is a promise still left to fulfill, and it is the land promise. Israel has never occupied the full expanse of that land that they were promised. And so if that's the case and you're familiar with modern geography, what is surrounding Israel right now? Many Muslim, Many Muslim countries. Islam. All over the place. How do you fulfill a land promise when you have Muslims everywhere? You have to dispose them. You have to dispose them. In fact, I would go as far as to say, and this sounds, this sounds horrible, but we have to remember this when we say this type of language. They're not guiltless, okay? You have to dispose of them. And how do you do that? Sad to say, it is a weapon of mass destruction that you have to bring in and set off in the midst of that country. The crazy thing is, is that nobody ever thought that that weapon would be a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the, okay, let's, let's back it up a little bit. It is the sky rolling up like a scroll. Imagine that first. That always freaks me out. In fact, anytime I teach it, I love to give this illustration. It is the sky doing this. Okay? So when you go out to your car after this and you're looking up at the sky, imagine. 
Now that's crazy. Why? Because it tells you that heaven is another dimension on the other side of the sky. Is that first verse that you read? Sure. <laughs> Actually, it's Matthew 24. Oh, okay. I'm really surprised that a lot of people don't link Matthew 24 and what Jesus says, I think it's 28 through 31, with the sixth seal judgment that takes place in, in Revelation. I don't understand why dispensationalists won't make that connection more often than what they do. But the idea is the sky rolls up like a scroll. The people on the earth see the Lord Jesus. They see the Lamb on the throne. And they are crying out to the rocks to fall on them so that they will die because they think that death will hide them from the face of God. God is eternal. So death cannot save you from his presence. Isn't that interesting? But notice, if I'm going to come to a man-made solution of how I avoid accountability, I'll choose death. I would rather die than answer for my crimes. Guess what? You don't get out of the system that quickly. It just doesn't happen. Do we want to look at that? Yeah. It's a fun place. Let's do that. Things only get worse. Yeah. It's true. Matthew 24. Let's take a look at it real quick. And we'll connect this to Revelation 6, I think it is. And take a look at this. I'm excited to get to prophecy, but I'm in no hurry to get past the church. <clears throat> See, Matthew 24. Look at verse 29. And real quick, does everybody remember, I don't have a marker, does everybody remember that I drew that little clock with hands on it? Everybody remember that? Timing language. The key to prophecy is timing language. It always is. When does something take place? When does it occur? Watch this. Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, stop. When is this going to take place? At the end of the tribulation. It doesn't need to say anything more than what it literally says in its grammatical, historical meaning and understanding. Now, if you needed more context in order to understand that, you go up to verse 21 and you see there, for then there will be great tribulation. Okay, and that's talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation after the abomination of desolation in 2415 takes place that we find in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. So you put all this together and you've got a perfect seven year timeline that you can easily decipher. Okay, it's really prophecy is not nearly as hard as what people think that it is. We just have to get in there and have eyes to see and be teachable when we see it. Daniel so notice what? what's that? Daniel what? Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven. So notice it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now I don't know about you. But that sounds like a bad time. Okay? If we're going to label it as anything, this is cosmological catastrophe that takes place. Verse 30. And then, everybody see the word then? Timing language. There it is right there. After the tribulation is over, and then, this is what will happen after all the celestial entities go crazy. Okay? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect. And that is not the church. That is the remnant of Israel who believes while being physically present on the earth. Context determines the meaning. From the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now you say, how come it's not the church? Because the church was raptured before the tribulation. Well, could it be believers physically on the earth? Yeah, I guess it could, but the main main thing that Jesus is concerned about here is the remnant of Israel. That's what he's concerned about. So notice how all that takes place. Everybody see that? And this is what's going to happen. What is the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in the sky? His second coming. His second coming. When he comes again. How do we know that? Look what it says. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, take your Bible, turn to Revelation 1, verse 7. Maybe we should do a prophecy class after Revelation. You don't think the sign is separate from the actual coming? What's that? You don't think there's a sign separate from the actual coming? I think the only only sign there that would be separate from the actual coming would be the fact of all of these things happen. I believe all this happens. And the reason why it happens, notice, sun will be darkened, moon not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, powers of the heavens will be shaken, because I believe that's when the sky rolls up like a scroll. Think about this real quick, okay? And if you think about this too hard, it will scare you to death, okay? Genesis chapter 1. God makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he does not place them over the firmament. He places them in the firmament. And every translation is intentional. And translating the Hebrew there exactly like it needs to be said. Why? Because when that firmament rolls up and there's no firmament anymore, there's nothing left to hold the sun, moon, and stars. Think about it. Okay? It's incredible. So, moving on from that, look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. I love it. Behold, he's coming in the clouds. Yay, Jesus is coming in the clouds. That's not what this verse is talking about. No applause here. Look what it says. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Who is, who's that? Who pierced him? Well, did they? Us. Us? No? Huh? The Jews. I think it's the Jews. We can differ on that. That's okay. You can be wrong. And all the tribes of the earth, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Does everybody see the same language? Same language that we just read in Matthew 24. Same event. It's almost like at the very beginning of this, John gets a glimpse. I always picture Revelation like this. There's a movie screen here. There's a movie screen here. There's a movie screen here. And he gets a vision here. And he gets a vision of something here. And he gets a vision of something here. And he actually paints for you what the coming of Jesus looks like. Do you realize that Jesus comes back four times in the book of Revelation? Does that mean that he comes back four times? No, I'm saying that every single time is giving you a different perspective of the exact moment of when he comes back because what is the great revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back through the sky? When he bursts, when he comes down on the clouds, when he comes back second coming. And so it's giving you, it's like a diamond. It's like a diamond that has four sides. It's precious overall, but there are four different ways you can look at it and you'll probably appreciate something different out of it every time you look at it. Now, that disagrees with some traditional dispensational understanding. I'm okay with that. I got nothing to lose. So, Revelation chapter 6. Turn to that. Verse 12. Here's the second listing of the return of Christ. 
Verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Does that sound like what we read in Matthew 24? It's the exact same instance. Everybody see that? That's important for us to understand because when you compare Scripture with Scripture in this way, that's what's known as the analogy of faith, if you've ever heard that phrase used. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And you can put those side by side. You start to be able to take prophecy and put it together and you realize it zips up just like a zipper perfectly. It's amazing. So notice what Jesus was talking about that time after the tribulation, right? And then all these things took place. So you know where you're at. You're in at the seven years. So this sixth seal takes place when? At the end of the seven years of tribulation. These events transpire and then watch what happens. Verse 14. For the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And if you want to put a little reference next to that, write Isaiah 2.19. You can check that out later, okay? <clears throat> Verse 16, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks. Now, stop. People are talking to mountains and rocks. What in the world is going on here? Okay? But he says, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice that his second coming is about the completion of his wrath, the wrath of Jesus. And look at this. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who's able to stand? Not a single person. There's the return of Christ. Scripture with Scripture with Scripture. Everybody see that? Which is the start of the millennium. Which will be the start of the 1,000 year reign of Christ when he sets all that up. That will be the judgment of the nations that takes place. And that at the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ, he's already judged the church. That takes place during the seven years of tribulation. That's at the Bema. Everybody's still saved. They're just given ruling and reigning responsibilities, rewards, crowns, special clothing, all of that stuff. Whether or not they have high-ranking positions in proximity to Jesus or not, whether they're people that are ruled over, they're still in the kingdom when he comes back. But then at that time, he will judge the nations when he begins to rule. He will rule the nations with the rod of iron. And this will be the sheep and goats judgment that goes on in Matthew 25. And then at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there will be a great rebellion from those people that will go on. And sorry, that will be actually the culmination of the nation's judgment at that time. And then after that will be the great white throne judgment. So not only will there be a physical judgment that will take place on earth, but then there will be a condemnation judgment of spiritual proportions of which they're cast into the lake of fire. And why is that? Because they don't have life. That's the problem. Bible's fun, isn't it? I love that stuff. Let's go back and finish Deuteronomy real quick. <laughs> not the book, just the chapter. Deuteronomy 12. So yeah, I don't know how we got on that goose chase, but I tell you what, it really provokes a lot of thinking, a lot of study, a lot of stimulation to understand those things a little bit better so we can communicate that clearly to people. <clears throat> so, oh, it had to do with the idea of dwelling in the land. Occupying the full expanse of the land is the idea. So you need Jesus Christ to return, come through the clouds, and when he does that, Guys, it's, it's not a joke. He puts to death all opposition against him at that time. 
The only people that are saved who are ushered into the kingdom as alive are those people who responded to the preaching of the kingdom, to the gospel, which includes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the main emphasis in that seven years is the gospel of the kingdom. Read Revelation. It talks about it. It's the preaching of the gospel of the coming kingdom once again, just like it was in the time of the gospels. Those people that respond to that, whether they be Gentile, whether they be Jew, if they survive through the massacre that is the tribulation time underneath the power of the man of sin, the man of lawlessness at that time, they are then ushered in. Everybody else dies. And therefore, Israel is able to occupy that full expanse. And why is that? Because their king has come and their king has set up his kingdom. That's the reason. He takes full advantage of the territory. So it says here, verse 30. Beware that you're not ensnared to follow them. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. If you've destroyed everybody off the face of the land, why would you be warned to follow people that you've wiped out? Because you didn't do what you were told to do. Because you didn't obey God. And notice that. Even though there's the potential of you taking care of this problem and judging them as God has called you to judge them, there's still the temptation to worship something other than God. So even Moses is warning them in this. They are uh, After they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, notice little g gods, demons, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I almost also may do likewise? In other words, the other nations that weren't part of that region, you're actually going door to door, and you're knocking, asking them, hey, can you tell me how this nation that we just conquered worshiped their gods so that we can do that? Why in the world would you do that? But what does it do? It exposes the extents of the sins of the human heart. That's just how crazy people get with it. Now watch this, how it moves forward. Verse 31. You shall not behave thus towards Yahweh your Elohim. For every abominable, every horrible act which Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it. Now let me give you a couple of references real quick if you want to just look at this throughout the week. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Judges 2, verses 6 through 23. And you can see the cycle that Israel got into because they didn't listen to this warning. Okay? Judges 2, verses 6 through 23. And then also Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah 22, and I think it's 38 through 44. It might be 28 through 44. Jeremiah 22, let me look at it real quick. No, what are you doing? I lost it. That might not even be the right thing here. Let me see. To da, 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 da. Jeremiah 32, forgive me. Jeremiah 32. And I think it's 28. Yeah, I wrote it down wrong. Jeremiah 32, 28 through 44. Good grief. Where's my brain? Um, 32. 28 through 44. And the reason why I want you to see that is because that gives the surrounding context of that Israel actually got to the point where they were worshiping Molech. And Molech is the false god that called for the sacrifice of children. You ever want some interesting study? Do some study on who Molech is. It's scary. 
uh, and it's scary because there's a lot of direct correlation between Molech and some of the some of the things that go on in our nation. Yeah. It's pretty scary. Solomon was a super genius, but he married his foreign woman, and they introduced Molech into so. exactly. Exactly, and that's a genius, but he's a fool. Exactly, and that's where it came from because Solomon actually ended up building an altar in high places to Molech, amongst other gods. Um, but yeah, but here's what's also interesting about that passage is by the time you get to the end of Jeremiah 32, you find the whole idea of God regathering the people, changing their hearts, and they actually fall in love with God. So it shows his grace on the end of all that judgment that he brings them on. In fact, that's the whole commissioning of King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon is going to come and he's going to judge your nation. So we're out of time. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Lots of fun stuff to think about. So God, thank you so much that you are the triumphant king, that the Lord Jesus Christ will return and make all things right. We thank you, God, that you've given us your word, your commands, your exhortations, your encouragement to obey you fully, to love you wholeheartedly, Lord, that there is no other truth and there is no other better solution than what you freely offer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.